and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to, introduce, to reintroduce to you now. James Conley is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out his first appearance on Boundless Body Radio in episode 315, titled Exploring the Deep Issues Around Food with James Conley. James Conley is an artist, chef, nonprofit founder, and documentary film producer with Archer Gray Productions. He co-founded the Bubble Foundation, a nonprofit focused on issues of wellness and food insecurity in inner-city public schools. James and the documentary film production team at Archer Gray Productions has produced a variety of films from Trans Military to Michael Moore's latest documentary, Where to Invade Next. James is also the producer of the documentary Sacred Cow and Death in the Garden, featuring former guests Jake Marquez and Marin Morgan, who we interviewed in episode 348. James is also the co-producer of the Sustainable Dish podcast. James's work helps us all grapple with our daily decisions of what to eat to sustain ourselves and our planet, and how we can all come to terms with the simple fact that the, to maintain and create life, we must accept death. You can find James on Instagram at Primate Kitchen. James Conley, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Boundless Body Radio. Cool, man. Thanks. That's an awesome introduction, too. Uh, well, you you have earned it. You are one of the most interesting people I have ever gotten to know. And I know what you do, but I never really know what you're doing. You're like Carmen Sandiego. You could be anywhere around the world, if like investigating some like like thing, finding some story. I never have any idea like what you're actually up to at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think one of the one of the privileges of of the the world that I kind of coexist in is that I actually can study things um, that I want to study, um, and you know, that one of the things that Diana I think realized early on was that, and why she asked me to kind of co-host with her on Sustainable Dish was because she was like, you you read all of these different things, like, can you start to build sort of like a a story around it? Um, and so for me, Sustainable Dish. The, the people that I've interviewed are like really interesting people that I'm trying to build an entire puzzle around. Um, and so I've interviewed people about the insect crisis, the financialization of farmland, uh, you know, uh, you know, so the billionaire sort of takeover of a lot of our world, uh, Davos men and the world economic forum and, you know, any number of different things to kind of build like a larger puzzle to the way that I try to think about things. Um, you know, but for the most part, like, I, you know, like I'm just, you know, my kids ignore me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they're so tired of me talking about meats, you know, uh, you know, the, the world that you try to build for the outside world and the world at home is like, you know, I have a friend who's like a, a celebrity actor and, and his kids just don't give a shit. <laughs> you <laughs> That's know? amazing. Well, they are teenagers, right? Your kids are teenagers. Uh, yep. I've got a 10 year old, a 14 year old, and then I've got one that I just sent off to college. He's uh, starting his, his sophomore year now. Nice. Um, so I'm, I'm nowhere near becoming an empty nester, but, um, but it's, it's gotten a lot easier. They're a lot older now. And yeah, stuff like that. that's yeah. great. Well, I don't know what you were like as a teenager, but I believe it was the, the, the day I turned 20. I was like, oh shit, my parents were right about a few things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was like 26 was, I started to realize like, you know, your brain's kind of mostly fully developed. Your prefrontal cortex is mostly fully developed. And I started to question like, what do I actually believe? Um, you know, I'd been inundated with, you know, like what my parents think about the world, uh, you know, newspapers and, you know, my education and all of this other stuff. And I said, you know, I really started like gear myself at 26 to sort of try to figure out like, if I believe in the world that I saw in front of me, 
and then sort of to build an entire, which I think is the, the objects, um, you know, of what an artist should be, right. They should be cultural critics, uh, people who try to understand things from an outside lens, maybe a Martian explorer, Martian anthropologist who tries to understand like, what is the story of humanity and what, what, if, what is the story that we've told ourselves since the dawn of civilization? Um, and, you know, for me, like the agricultural revolution is the thing that we still live in. Like we want to say it's moved into an industrial revolution. I want to say that the birth of the Internet is now an information revolution. But none of this stuff exists without the agricultural revolution. Um, and that's the, you know, the story that are, that is primarily told through most major religions in this world is an agricultural revolution story. Um, and so that took me, God, I mean, I'm, st I'm probably going to work on that for the rest of my life, trying to understand all of the aspects of that. Um, you know, this uh, stratification of society, um, you know, the, the, sort of birth of any number of different factors that we consider innate to human culture um, doesn't actually exist for a lot of hunter-gatherers. Um, and they wouldn't understand a lot of the questions that we say over and over again. Um, they wouldn't even have a basic framework of the way that we operate. Um, and for the most part, a lot of them, uh, without forced uh, education, would never adopt this. And I always found that was really interesting to me. It was like, what, what is it specifically about our culture? Even Benjamin Franklin complained about it. He said that, um, you know, uh, women would flee from the oppression of what is, you know, uh, colonial civilization um, and never want to come back to it. Um, and it, I don't know if he complained about it or he was more fascinated by it, um, you know, and then any Native American that was forced to like endure the civilization would spend their entire lives trying to get away from it, yep. you know? Yeah. And so the story has been around for a really long time and I, I find it's really fundamentally really interesting to sort of figure out like, what are the oppressions in our society that we just don't even really see that much because we're swimming in that water. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah, no, that's yeah. a really good point. And I'm, I'm glad you went there with that and, and talked about stories. I think you're one of the best storytellers that I've ever come across who can kind of take the facts and make it into like a really interesting story. And I think you're right. Like if we're, we're so involved in this culture, we don't know anything really different. We don't know, you know, we've lost touch with, with how we've evolved and, and that sort of thing. And so it's kind of sad. So that's the story I wanted to kind of create and tell with you today is, you know, taking us back to our hunter gatherer evolution and, and, you know, what exactly was the agriculture revolution and how how is that still impacting us today? So I definitely want to go there. I do want to tease something that's going to come later. You and I talked about creating an episode where you were going to um, teach us how to um, kind of deal with like cheaper cuts of meats and how to make them really, really delicious. The Balanced Body uh, LLC Board of Directors really wanted you to answer to your statement that you had in our last podcast where you said filet mignon is like the shittiest cut of meat anyway. <laughs> the imaginary non-existent board of directors around here really wants you to explain your work. So we're going to get to that later. Um, but yeah. yeah, so let's, let's, let's take this back as far as you like, like what, what, what made humans, what made us unique? Why is this like relatively weak, hairless kind of primate? How, how are we the ones that have Olympics? How are we the ones that went to the moon? How are we the ones that are communicating two time zones away through my phone on zoom? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is sort of myth of progress, right? So we, um, we seem to have a story that we keep on telling ourselves, which is where we're supposedly getting to something. Um, you know, so I think if you look at the origin story of, say, the Christian and Jewish myths, uh, the being 
uh, uh, sorry, not myths, but the creation stories uh, centered around that. I think that one of the more interesting aspects of it, and Daniel Quinn kind of talks about it, he said that um, a lot of the uh, sort of Genesis story uh, seems to have been a hunter-gatherer story um, sort of taken in uh, by the culture that was surrounds it um, and then sort of taken in without a lot of critical thought. Um, and so the expulsion from the Garden of Eden really and and the uh, the eating of the apple, which is the knowledge of good and evil, um, the knowledge of good and evil was how to live in this world. Um, and so what civilization did was it said, we can be gods ourselves. Uh, we can actually take and determine what is good and what is evil. Um, and Quinn actually uses this really well. He says, um, you know, there are times when the fox eats and there's a time, there are times when the hen eats uh, or escapes from the fox. And both of them are good, right? It may be bad for the fox uh, and good for the chicken if it escapes. Um, it also be, may be good for the fox if he catches the chicken. Um, and so that story of good and evil was essentially taken uh, taken and made into civilization where we said, well, we're no longer going to live by the rules that govern all life on this planet. Uh, we're going to live by these new set of rules by which we will go and tend with our own hands uh, all of the agricultural productivity that we start to produce. Um, and it made us sedentary. Uh, it, it, you know, stratified our society. Um, as soon as you start to create agricultural surplus, then you have to guard it then you start to create the building of armies. Uh, you'll never create, create enough agricultural surplus that you don't have to take over other lands. So we start to create methodologies and means of war. Um, then you need kings, you need uh, patrilineal, like, you know, uh, descendants. You need to uh, understand and govern who your children are. Um, it, it breaks apart the tribe into stratified, like, society. Uh, women start to lose power. They start to lose their influence, and and um, and their and most a lot of the aspects of women's wisdom are subjugated to that sort of very masculine identity. Um, and so then we go out into the world, um, and you know, even if you look at the story of Cain and Abel, um, you have what is essentially a sort of pastoralist myth, which is um, two sacrifices are offered to God. Uh, you have Cain's sacrifice, which is. Um, you know, wheat and, uh, you know, some, some sort of ag agriculture, like fruits and, and, and wheats and breads. Uh, and then you have the sacrifice of the pastoral animal, which is accepted by a God. Um, so the story of Cain and Abel, uh, that pastoral story is accepted by God. Cain becomes jealous of it. And he, he, in essence, kills Abel because of that jealousy. And that talks a lot about what actually happened when you start to build this agricultural surplus uh, and then start to go out into the world, pastoralists can't uh, find it very difficult to coexist uh, with the, the range of uh, agricultural like work that needs to be done. Um, and so we've seen this in the hunter-gatherer societies in sub-Saharan Africa, where um, you get places like the, um, a lot of the aboriginal societies there um, are given like less and less range for them to be able to go and operate. Um, we see this with the San people of the Kalahari. We see this over and over again, that they, they're given either um, land that is mostly uh, can't be produced for, for agricultural purposes, 
um, and their range just is greatly diminished. Or you see this in places like Kenya with the Maasai um, and the, the forced displacement that we actually see now is occurring again and again and again. Happened in the 70s, happened in the 80s, happened in the 90s. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I kind of want to like uh, sort of pause there, like to see what you want to say on that. Okay, Did I so get anywhere close to your abs- <laughs> absolutely no, that's fantastic. Okay, yeah. so you're, you're talking about like like we take people out of these cultures, we put them back in to, or, or we 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 take them out, put them into civilization. They just want to go back. It's it's interesting. I think most people today would not want to trade in their cell phone and their air conditioned house and their nice car for that type of a life to go live in the grass. But you're telling us, and I've read this too that the those people that we took out, they, they always want to go back. Do you, this is probably pure speculation, but if we had it so good as hunter-gatherers and were existing in this in this way that we were really thriving, I, I don't think many people realize that, but what, it, pure speculation, but in your opinion, having studied this, why did we make that trade? Why did we start agriculture to begin with? Yeah, you know, the uh, so the, the mythology around it, um, the stuff that civilizations told for a very long time, is that um, that we were starving, um, and that uh, we had essentially taken all all of the the free range bounty that we had seen around us, uh, and at, were forced into agricultural productivity and as as a methodology to uh, stave off um, starvation. Uh, Quinn disagrees with this um, vehemently. He said, um, "Starving people do not create civilizations; uh, they tend to do very rarely anything else." Um, there is a, a bit of work on, you know, a, a climactic shift that may have occurred uh, in which, um, you know, people were forced to be more sedentary. Um, and, you know, and, and in some ways it may have just been a, a, a product of an understanding of the environment that had us kind of like starting to manipulate the environment in ways um, that made us a, a bit more sedentary. So if you start to build sort of um, uh, aquifers, even small aquifers that that lead towards water systems uh, for uh, for nuts, for the mangongo nuts or for the almond trees or anything like that, uh, you will come back for harvest in and around that time. And then you, you start to get a, a huge sort of like caloric dense uh, diet that is associated with that. Um, and so you keep on going back to some of the same places and then you become a little bit more sedentary over time um, in any number of different things. Uh, and I would I would venture guess to say that nobody has a really good idea as to what happened. Um, one of the things I find more interesting about the question is the secondary aspect of it, which is um, what made it so that this new story that we told ourselves um, started to take over everything. Um, so Quinn divides the world in essentially two people, um, two types of people. He said, regardless of the cultures that you see around us, there are people who hoard food, who own food, uh, and there are people who, who, in essence, see food as as free. Um, nature provides, and he he tries to divide it between those two. Um, the, the people who hoard and own food um, are, in essence, modern day society. Right. Um, you know, the, the story I, I very often tell, it's like, there's no Shakespeare without food. There's no, like, there's no Elon Musk without food. Um, but it's, it's an invisible entity that most people don't focus on unless, you know, there's somebody like Brett who goes through like, you know, Brett Ender, of Mean Mafia who goes through, um, 
you know, this life, life transforming, um, moment where they go from, uh, a vision of chronic sickness for the rest of their lives and then fundamentally change their diet in a way that they say, all right, well, I never want to go back to that. They become the biggest and best proselytizers for a new like food system and, and way of thinking about it. Um, most of the nutritionists and dietetic students, the ones that were really good when I um, had my nonprofit in New York City, most of the ones were undiagnosed celiac disease or some sort of chronic condition that was cured with food. And they became the best teachers, the people more in tune with you know, uh, food and what it means it does for you. Um, Diana like thought that she had, I think in, in her early teens, thought she had dyslexia. Um, she had undiagnosed celiac disease. And so you take somebody who had lived through this like Venus fog of life where it's really, really difficult to wake up every day and um, go through an, an entire school system and all of that other stuff. And then you have this light bulb moment where you change this dietary thing. And it's like, you know, like clear days and, you know, you become the type of person who wants to, to talk about this and, and help people for the rest of their lives. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that the stories that we tell ourselves about economics, about the building of society, none of those that actually really factor into hunter-gatherer societies. Um, I go out and I, you know, take down a buffalo. And so I take whatever the surplus I have and I sell it to the person next to me. It doesn't really happen in agriculture, uh, in hunter-gatherer societies. Everything is shared. Um, the only people who get preferential treatment uh, tend to be pregnant women and women who are nursing, um, right? And so in some ways, and elders as well, um, because, you know, I think we start to realize, like, um, you need more protein past a certain point. Um, and so uh, you do get preferential treatment, but it's an understanding within that society that that these are the people that that actually need the, the iron, the extra nutrients, uh, the organ meats and everything like that. Um, and so our economic system is prefaced upon this idea that like one person has a thing and another person has a thing and you trade those. I don't necessarily see a lot of that um, uh, in uh, hunter-gatherer societies unless they're trading outside of their own group. Um, and then sometimes that bartering system doesn't look anything like what we see today is what we consider sort of modern day, like free market economics where somebody has something and somebody needs something. Yeah buyer and seller type of thing. Interesting. You know? Well, and it's something that you talk about a lot where like, where we, you know, regardless of who the president is or what party he's on, he's always going to be made fun of on late night TV. Like there was, that's built into our yeah. <clears throat> society from hunter gatherer <laughs> times. Like if you made the kill, people would literally like almost like make fun of you or, or say that you weren't very good at hunting and you got lucky or something to help bring that person down. So everybody stayed humble. Yeah. Or you trade arrows. So it was it the hunter who, who took down uh, the meat or was it the arrow that was made by somebody else? Wow. Um, and so there, there are entire systems in place to make sure that what we have today, which is the sort of modern environment of, say you just take media and self uh, sportsmanship, right? So you get a Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan sells a pair of shoes. So you believe that you're mimicking Michael Jordan by wearing his shoes and maybe you'll be able to like play like him and get the wealth and the status and all of the other accoutrements of modern day society. Um, you get all of those things because you buy that product and now you're the perfect consumer. Um, and so I think within the context of hunter-gatherer societies, um, there are many in the there are many systems in place to ensure that nobody directly takes over. 
um, that you wouldn't have something like a sociopath who takes more than their share. Uh, you wouldn't have, um, like everybody sort of knows each other. Um, you don't really exceed Dunbar's number in terms of how you can know somebody intimately enough to know that, you know, they're, they're fabricating the truth or anything like that. Um, and yeah, ridicule is such a good way of like keeping people in their place. Uh, there's a story of an anthropologist who, uh, wanted to go out and he wanted to thank a group that he had, had lived with. There's so many stories like this. And so he went to the market and bought the fattest cow that he could, you know, and brought it to them. And they were like, Oh, like we moved away from the fire for this scrawny thing. It's not even going to nourish us. It's not going to feed us. It's not going to do anything. He's like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and they, they take him aside. They understand that. They like, they will say, Hey, like this is, this is how we make sure that you don't come back and tell us how to live our lives. Or, you know, you, we share things communally. We, we, um, we utilize, um, what I think is the, the wisdom of the people who actually do know what they're talking about. Um, you, uh, you will go and you will talk to them about, um, you know, uh, climactic change or things that have changed that crises, any number of different things. Um, you know, ancestral medicine, there were shamans, there were wisdom seekers, there were people within that group. Everybody performed a very sacred function that allowed for group continuity and, you know, a group cohesion that I think most of us feel is missing in the world today. Um, and one of the reasons why I love podcasting, because like you and I can talk across, you know, in infinite borders and, you know, uh, my, hundreds of miles away, but that level of communication between you and I means that like, you know, have, you know, have a great conversation about, you know, things that genuinely matter to you and I, yeah. you know, I love that. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So agriculture is this huge shift in our behavior as a species. I understand it to be much more gradual though. So it was a big shift. It just took kind of a long time to transition over and it lasted for quite a while. Can you describe the, the transition from the agriculture evolution, which you, you know, again, are saying that that's still on today, but also getting into the industrial um, revolution, like how that transitioned? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's gone from like steps and processes um, that were mainly predicated upon like crisis after crisis. Um, I think a, a, a lot of colonialism, um, it, it, you can see this in the notes on the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's book. Um, he talked about agricultural productivity and the, the use and the waste of land um, and how it became incumbent upon uh, settler societies to continue to expand, expand once they had exhausted the land um, that they found. Um, and so you would see this constant um, you know, sort of uh, uh, colonial expansion as they destroyed topsoil, as they cut down forests, as they move through that entire system. Um, the utilization of that entire system meant that a nature nature is really resilient, but it can become exhausted, um, and it it does take a you know, in terms of human time, um, you can exhaust it fairly quickly, um, and so. What we've seen over the past 12,000 years is a functional shift in every single econo uh, ecosystem on this planet. Every habitable part of this planet has been colonized by humans, uh, taken over or mainly used. Um, you know, now that we're trying to mine the sea and the, you know, the bottom of the sea for, for precious minerals and, and look for all of that stuff. 
Um, and so, and it also goes into the, the idea of mining asteroids and getting to Mars, right? Um, is to, to perpetually feed this idea of, of progress for its own sake. Um, and I've never really gotten a sense of where everybody thinks that we're going. <laughs> Nobody seems to want to talk about that. I mean, in, in the 1950s, you get like posters of what the future would look like. Um, you know, jetpacks and flying cars and the Jetsons and any number of different things. I don't know how much we see that stuff anymore. Uh, sci-fi seems to like paint a picture of the future as a sort of like economic, like in global wasteland where uh, resources are scarce uh, and we're all living in sort of hovels. Um, you can see a total systems change in the way that our culture now sees the future. Um, but the Industrial Revolution coincided with a new agricultural revolution um, that we are still living in today, which is um, the idea, the primary idea today is that um, that we were a total war with nature. Um, and that, that was the 1950s um, up until uh, sort of regenerative agriculture. Um, sustainable and regenerative and maybe organics uh, started to get more and more into this stuff. Uh, so this total war with nature meant that every agricultural pest, every fungus um, um, had to be eradicated, destroyed, wiped off the planet if we could. Um, and that's where we started to use things that are really toxic, toxic to farmers, toxic to the environment, toxic to our waterways. Um because the system, uh, our, our idea was that nature was um, the biggest barrier for this global shift. Um, and so in some ways, I always like to play between those two different worlds. Uh, farmers were told throughout the 20th century that we had to feed the future. Um, and that we, we were told that the population growth over the course of the 20th century would uh, achieve these milestones that we had to meet in ter uh, terms of agricultural productivity. Um, and so as we started to like functionally change the biomass of this planet to feed ourselves, um, we, the farmers actually kept up with most of that stuff. Um, scientists worked on it. You get, uh, Norman Borlaug, you get any number of these, uh, the author of the green revolution, uh, you get any number of different systems that were put in place, uh, to sort of feed the future. Um, the main problem with that is that that the level of nature's resilience um, can take those crises uh, in spurts, uh, and it can and it can recover very quickly over time. Uh, it cannot deal with the level of biomass that we've converted to to feed ourselves, um, and I think that's what we're seeing nowadays. Um, and so then you get, lo and behold, you get these like very specific groups that will kind of come in. They've, they've in essence kind of taken over the story of how to feed into that new future. Uh, and that's where you get a lot of the sort of plant-based movement, the uh, sort of veganism, this idea that we're going to create this kind of new utopia, um, that this worldview will uh, end death and suffering. And, you know, people will kind of like live in these cities, we'll all get shuttled in the cities, and then we'll rewild the rest of the planet. Um which is a story that I think a lot of people find absolutely abhorrent, especially for a kid who like, like me, who grew up in like Queens, New York, the idea of like living your entire life in a city is like so abhorrent to me now. No thanks. <laughs> you know? no thanks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, we do live in a day and age where you can go to the grocery store just down the street and you can buy plant-based meat, which just that name alone is so absurd to me. And as we walk back some of these other stories and, and that one in particular, 
plant-based veganism, vegetarianism, and its roots in religion. I recently heard you on a podcast talking about this. We've talked about it before. I would love to go in depth in it. And you were just starting to kind of like talk a little bit about religion and one religion in particular, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And then you said something about cereal and, and, you know, sexual pleasures. And I love this. The host was like, wait a second, what's this now about cereal? And I was so jealous of her. If I could go back and unlearn that story just to relearn it from you. Like, wait, what is this about cereal? Like, oh, sit down, buckle up. You're going to have a great ride on this one. Can we go back and talk about the, the, the relationship between religion and the plant-based kind of movement. Yeah, and it's and it's not specific to um, you know the uh, yeah. So I could I could go through the story that I always tell, um, which would like kind of it ends up kind of blowing people's minds because I think we grow up with all of this stuff from like Nabisco's, you know, uh, to graham crackers to you know uh, to the birth of cereal um, to all of those things, and I can do it pretty quickly nowadays. Um, the absurdity of it is that it actually like very, very closely mimics what we're dealing with nowadays. So you get this uh, evangelical church um, that wants to create a kind of a new garden of Eden on the planet. Um, and I've listened to lectures before um, coming from Loma Linda University, which is a Seventh-day Adventist uh, university in California, uh, where they genetically want to modify uh, all carnivores on the planet uh, so that they can tolerate grasses and forages and legumes and stuff like that. So their idea is in order to create um, the second coming, this new utopia, the Garden of Eden on this planet, you, in essence, have to follow a very biblical tradition of like a few very choice passages from uh, the book of Genesis um, that talks about what the Garden of Eden was, uh, where the lion lays down with the lamb and where the, you know, uh, you only eat from the germ of the seed of the tree, uh, which is nuts and all of that other stuff. Um, and so their idea is to sort of modify um, using you know, genetics in order to get almost everybody to adopt this plant-based diet. Um, Seventh-day Adventists are really, really interesting um, in the fact that, like, there's about 23 million worldwide. Uh, There was an uptick during COVID, so I think they were at 22 million before. But, man, they are just invisible. It's absolutely stunning how invisible they are. Um, New York right now is has a a $2 billion housing project that they're building in – uh, in East New York, um, and it's run by the Blue Zones, which was bought for $72 million by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Blue Zones, uh, Blue Zones is a uh, pseudoscientific, uh, <laughs> National Geographic, weird um, Dan Buettner's, like whole uh, you know idea of like the longest-lived uh, populations on the planet. Um, he goes into it. He said, most of them are primarily plant-based. I don't know what plant-based means. Um, the U S is plant-based It's 70% of our food is plant-based. Um, actually 75% of it is plant-based. Everybody on this planet is plant-based. Uh, but he utilizes this to say that these are centenarians. Uh, this is what they eat. Um, and he ignores all, he will talk about it, but the blue zones as they're incorporating into cities and around the world now, uh, primarily just talks about diet. Right, no siestas in the middle of the afternoon. Right? No like time out in the sun. No like long vacation times, like time with community or anything like that. We're just going to take the plant based diet. We're going to. This is what America does, right? We take the one thing. We say the Mediterranean diet. We say, oh, eat fish and olive oil. You just ignore 
all of the other aspects of like Mediterranean culture that is cohesive and family oriented and, you know, uh, established connections across multiple generations where people take care of each other, ignore all of that stuff. We're going to say, have some olive oil, eat some nuts and berries, and you're going to live for all of that time. So Seventh-day Adventism uh, was an offset of uh, the Millerites. Um, the Millerites were an apocalyptic uh, religious group um, built in this like one section in upstate New York called the Burned Over District. Uh, they called it that was because they had all of these apocalyptic cults and strange religions and um, uh, you know um, like open sex societies and everything like that. Uh, that happened with the sort of uh, building of uh, the uh, the Hudson River um, aqueducts that that shipped all of these uh, agricultural products to New York City, uh, and so people started moving out of the city. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, this this whole area just became this like kind of commune of people trying out new religions. Um, that's where you get Mormonism from uh, until he was kicked out and shoved away and ended up in Salt Lake City. Um, and you have, uh, so the Millerites believed, and I think it was like 1838, uh, they believed that uh, Christ was coming. Uh, they did the calculations. They sold all their positions. They walked up on a hill uh, and waited for the second coming of Christ. And they called it the Great Disappointment because he didn't show. <laughs> <laughs> were they the ones? Right? Were they the ones uh, renting billboards by the freeway that said the Mayan calendar is ending? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's just it. Yeah, I've, ever since civilization. There have always been people who are like, no, this is not going to, this is not going to last. <laughs> um, so the Millerites had um, sort of fell out of favor after that. Um, but uh, Ellen G. White uh, was a, she took all of this stuff in. She grew up in a society waiting for the world to end. Um, and she had a traumatic brain injury that uh, kind of left her comatose for a really long time. I think also her father was a hatter. Uh, so she may have had like mercury poisoning. Interesting. Um, and one of the symptoms, one of the symptoms of mercury poisoning is visions and um, like, uh, you know, any number of different sort of comatose states that she would kind of fall in. Um, she convalesced after getting hit in the uh, head with a rock um, when she was young, uh, she convalesced at a Graham house, which is Sil uh, Sylvester Graham's house. Uh, Sylvester Graham was um, one of the early proponents of this idea of vegetarian America. Um, he tried to move everybody away from uh, abstaining from alcohol and moving over to a pri uh, pri primarily a vegetarian diet. Uh, he was anti-masturbation. He was anti-sex. Um, he, uh, and he was, he had a huge amount of influence on a number of different people. Um, uh, Louisa May Alcott, uh, his father, um, tried to build a vegetarian utopia. I think it was in Massachusetts called Fruitvale. Um, and then there was a place called Octagon City where, uh, in Oklahoma that they tried to build like a vegetarian paradise. Um, and every single one of them like failed, uh, Fruitvale, they almost starved to death. Uh, Alcott and her family almost start to death trying to live a vegan diet. Um, and so um, Graham's influence started to wane a little bit. Um, he actually tried to uh, start eating meat later on in life because he, he knew he was, uh, he'd actually 
fundamentally ruined his health. Uh, but he ended up passing away. I think he was like 56 at the time, but his influence, uh, his influence was definitely like still felt by the time, uh, LNG white kind of comes into the picture. Uh, she starts to have all of these visions, uh, representations of the world ending. Um, she moves with her husband over to Battle Creek, Michigan, uh, where she sets up her original church. Um, and in that church, they, um, there, there, there is all of this stuff about, uh, she kind of starts semi-vegetarian. Um, she it adopts it much more as a symbol of, uh, sort of a, a purity of existence that, um, that would in essence sort of shuttle us into a new world. Uh, but she doesn't originally start out vegetarian. Um, she, she adopts that as like a, uh, sort of methodology for proselytization and then for, uh, for the, a lot of the health and purity complexes that we see, um, sort of ending in the 19th century. Um, her apprentice is like 12 years old. Um, John Harvey Kellogg, uh, his whole family were Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, Kellogg apprentices with her. So he's actually doing a lot of copy editing for her work. Um, she, most of her revelations, um, years and years later were kind of found out that most of them were plagiarisms. Um, they, she took from a lot of, uh, pseudoscience at the time, phrenology, weird, like, uh, idealistic cults about purity. Um, she repackaged them and kind of sold them as revelations from God. Um, and so, John Harvey Keller goes off into the world. Um, he wants to become a doctor. He starts to, he, he actually apprentices in New Jersey with a guy uh, who does the water cure, which is huge, so prevalent around that time. Uh, essentially just enemas, um, you know, like purified water, um, you know, uh, enemas, like clearing, clearing out all of those toxins. He kind of comes back. He recognizes it's like, he's not really a doctor at this point. He just studied this. Um, he ends up going to New York City and he studies um, to become a doctor. He comes back. Um, he, one of his apprenticeships is at a hospital where um, you have a lot of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. So he sees syphilis. Um, you know, this is before antibiotics. Um, if you ever want to see the long term effects of syphilis, uh, watch The Nick, the HBO show. Um, they go through with this, uh, you just hor absolutely horrible. Your brain is eaten away, turns into Swiss cheese. Uh, you lose your nose, you lose like, um, it is an absolutely horrific disease. He decides he's never having sex. He's like, I'm out, <laughs> you know? Um, and he reaches, he like writes his treatise on masturbation and purity and all this stuff on his honeymoon. He claims he's never had sex with his wife in 40 years. Um, he, he lives the lifestyle of seven day Adventism. Um, and he's just a, just a really strange character. Um, him and his brother, uh, actually I think it was his wife, um, kind of start to work on breakfast cereals. Uh, they, they're trying to create, um, most breakfasts at the time were probably, um, leftovers from the night before. Uh, they were probably meat heavy, um, you know, any number of different things. So he wants to create something that is a pure uh food um that doesn't have any taste um because he believes that fat uh meat and sensational foods like salt and spices uh you know like will 
uh, inflame the passions and make people want to either touch themselves or want to have sex. He wants to remove that from people. So he creates the first like plant-based like meats as well. Uh, he creates the first cereal group. His brother takes all of that stuff and he turns it into a multi-million dollar empire. Uh, and then Kellogg becomes like this sort of de facto like celebrity for the purity culture that is at the time. Uh, the sanitarium itself became like a, you know, uh, presidents would go there, uh, celebrities, um, any number of different people who kind of worked on their health. Uh, he pushed a lot of that stuff. He never got rid of the whole enema thing. Uh, he invented a machine that would shove like 15 gallons of water per minute up your bum. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and, you know, everything is about this whole idea of purity, right? He, he got an enema every single day. He would chart his poop. Uh, he would like do any number of different things. Uh, he got heavily involved in eugenics, uh, the forced sterilization of peoples that he considered to be uh, defective. Uh, he was one of the biggest and like primary proponents of that uh, in the early part of the 20th century. He funded the Race Betterman Foundation um, and a lot of that stuff. The original science behind that, the sterilization procedures, um, the all of those things in essence became the legal representation um, and the uh, the um, the inspiration behind the Nazis' eugenics program and sterilization program. Um, so a lot of that stuff stemmed from this idea of these purity cults who like really wanted to remove themselves from meat production and um, you know towards this other thing. Um, and so, like I've studied Kellogg for a number of years, be- just because I find him really interesting. Um, I, I think, uh, his legacy is mostly sort of greenwashed. Um, you don't get any of that sense when you look at the multinational, uh, corporation that is Kellogg. It's one of the biggest, you know, one of the eight, um, you know, uh, largest multinational food companies on the planet. Um, the other ones are Nestle Unilever. Um, Nestle is involved in a number of different, like, horrible horrible like genocides and you know across the world involved in child slavery unilever as well uh they were implicated in the genocide of the congo um they you know these are these are companies that in the beginning of the 20th century uh is in essence established the seed of what we actually live in nowadays which is you know these these companies that try to give themselves as the like uh, they're the ones who are going to take us into the future. They're going to build the sustainable food environment, which is ultra processed foods, shelf stable foods, uh, nutrient poor uh, commodity products that they're just going to repackage and resell us in, in myriad different ways as like, you know, novel, interesting, you know, meat amalgams and all this other stuff. And then at the end result of that, like what you end up with is the food environment that we have nowadays, you know? And so you'll see these guys at UN food system summit, you'll see them all over the place um, at every single governmental, uh, you know, uh, USDA, FDA, like, you know, um, uh, you know, product that comes out. Uh, They have enormous influence. They're one of the largest lobbying groups in Washington, um, they're also one of the largest uh, lobbying groups in in Western Europe. Um, they they're pernicious and essentially everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, the story of Kellogg is just absolutely nuts. It's so crazy. <laughs> Reading some of his like original writings on the topic of sex and masturbation yep. is like it's pretty dark, man. It's pretty heavy stuff to go back and read. Um, and and I I think I'm I'm 
accurate on this. I want to say maybe Belinda told me this, but it, it, when we think of what a current yeah. hospital is today, are we thinking like these are all things that John Harvey Kellogg created essentially, right? Yeah, I think, um, and Belinda's really the expert on all of this stuff. Um, I will, uh, on at times, find something that Belinda, like, in, you know, like uh, twice, I think twice, hey, hey, like five years of research, good. I found something that's that good. she didn't know about. Um, she is a, the world's foremost, like, uh, expert on Seven Day Adventist Church. Um, the, uh, so she, she told me that uh, Kellogg's wife was, uh, instrumental in the uh, the sort of modern day nursing uh, construct. Um, Seven Day Adventists, I think, were uh, in some ways sort of anti uh, getting into and uh, into the war itself, uh, but they they were instrumental in creating the framework for a lot of World War One, going into World War Two um, nursing and. Uh, and then originally the dietetics program that was created uh, was essentially a Seventh-day Adventist church construct. Um, there is a paper online. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, it's called The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet. Um, it goes through it. You should probably just read the one paragraph where they kind of brag about um, the the, uh, the one thing that they added to the USDA program on diet uh, and um, it where they inputted the original language that says uh, a a well-managed vegan and vegetarian diet is safe for all ages. Uh, They were the ones who originally kind of put that in there. And I think five of the nine original um, uh, dietetics group that got together, five of them were Seventh-day Adventists. Um, Joan Sabate still like governs most of what's happening at the USDA in terms of their nutrition program. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, you know, and, and the thing about it is like, you know, if you study Loma Linda, if you study the group that Blue Zones says is the model for the way to live in, in, in America and have these centenarians and have these like people very healthy into, um, the, you know, into their seventies. Um, the things that I find really interesting about that is the way, cause the seven day Adventist church is really interesting in that they will tell you exactly what they think, right? They're not hiding it, right? They're bragging about it. Um, and so you read a lot of their work. Uh, Weeks was, I think, the grandson of Ellen G. White. He's written a number of books. Um, he says that specifically, we uh, zoning allow zoning laws didn't allow liquor stores um, in Loma Linda. It didn't allow fast food in Loma Linda. Um, and so they created uh, an environment that was essentially like an encapsulated space that didn't allow for a lot of our modern food environment to kind of come in there. Yes, it may have been plant-based. It's hard to get a sense of what they consider to be uh, a vegan or vegetarian diet because I don't think um, they adhere to it as much as they say that they do. Um, but a lot of the research that says that they're, they're, the specific health outcomes of that, I think, are about creating that barrier sphere that doesn't allow for um, smoking, alcohol uh, uh, intake, and you know, also living in California, right? Sun exposure, exercise—they build entire like you know parks, and everything is centered around diet and exercise. So, all of the benefits that they say is accrued to the vegetarian diet is also it, most of it. I think is just lifestyle. Yeah. 
You know? Yeah, it's interesting to ponder, too, that Loma Linda was only added later as the fifth blue zone after the four were first established. After Dan Buettner got involved, they needed to market this and sell his books here in America, so they added the fifth blue zone, which isn't like the other blue zones. It's not like people are born there, they live there, and they die there. This is a retirement community in a bubble, like you said, where there's things preventing yeah. them from from you know straying too far um, away from whatever their teachings are in that one area. So it's not really a blue zone where, like in some of these other places, they're born together, they live together, they all die together. It's totally out of context. And we're only looking at one thing. You're looking at diet and emphasizing that, not emphasizing the other things. And it's so interesting to ponder what you mentioned earlier, that this religion is largely like invisible. Like I know one or two Adventists. I don't know that many. You don't see their churches all over the place, but the level of influence over the years and the chain of events that happened, you mentioned the dietetic schools, the diet, the, the nutrition certification book behind me that's 700 pages says nothing about Adventism, but it was the, the foundations of teachings around food. The, the foundations were laid in the 1910s by Seventh-day Adventists. So it's, it's not only that they have gotten themselves into incredible places of influence today, but they've been influencing things and setting those foundations for 100, 150 years. Yeah, so that it, it, when you say meat is part of a healthy diet, you're the crazy person. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's insane. We're living the fad diet right now. This is the fad diet. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the end result of that is like, you know, the continuity between a lot of vegan activism uh, and the sort of crossover between them. Uh, you can find seven day Adventists have, have done uh, a number of different documentaries that have come out. Um, uh, Milton Mills is a seven day Adventist. Um, he has been in, uh, they're trying to kill us, which is a black vegan documentary. He's a seven day Adventist. Um, you'll find a lot of Dr. Greger's work, uh, coincides and, and cooperates Neil Barnard. Um, I don't know how much of them are sort of related to the religion itself. Um, but they show up in every single one of those documentaries. They're essentially the proselytizer, uh, for this movement, uh, or the front facing proselytizer for that movement. And so the animal, the animal rights groups, um, I have in essence sort of partnered up with them in myriad different ways. Um, and they're all working towards a, you know, what they consider to be like the greater good, which is to convert us all towards vegetarianism. Um, you know, and I think that like one of the things I find sort of, you know, you can even find Seventh-day Adventist church in Nazi Germany. They were one of the few churches that weren't completely shut down wow. and one of the few vegetarian societies that, that wasn't shut down. Um, and they've had to sort of reconcile themselves with red papers where they're like, yeah, you know, we, we, we adhered to a lot of Hitler's principles because he espoused the idea that the, the future of Nazi Germany was vegetarian. Um, you know, and so, and it, not to say that, seven day Adventists are Nazis, right? um, but that, you know, that there's, um, but there is this, uh, and you, I, and I am seeing it pop up a little bit here and there now with carnivore groups and other groups that are trying to move outside of that is that you start to move into this purity complex thing, um, that I find kind of a little bit worrying, um, just because I think that it's, um, your, your, your reaction against modern day society, um, doesn't have to be total. Um, I think that there is, um, if you want to sort of mimic hunter gather societies, there are certain tenets of that, that are part of those groups, um, that I find, um, uh, we're, we're circling around. So a lot of the progressive movements around 
women's rights and gay rights and everything like that um, are somewhat intrinsic to a lot of uh, hunter-gatherer societies. Um, and so this movement towards purity culture, I think, kind of will will push people in this general direction uh, where they're now rejecting a lot of the moves that have been made in civilization to allow people to have their own voice and um, to espouse, you know, like if, if you are like a, a, a lot of vegans will end up looking at the world from a very left perspective. Um, and I think it's a misplaced misguided perspective right um you know so some of the aspects of that kind of make me a little bit uncomfortable um i'm not going to name names or anything like that but i think that there is sort of an element of that um and a lot of it is a reaction to this totalitarian very like top-down worldview where you have people um kind of running the show who have extraordinary wealth who are telling us all how to kind of live nowadays um and you know that reaction i think is genuine right we should all be pushing back against that um you know in in myriad different ways it's not a future that i want to live in um and you know and this sort of techno utopian one is not a future i want to live in yeah you know well okay so i really wanted to ask you that as well We, we have this world now where somebody who created a you know computer company 50 years ago is now pushing different you know, vegan and vegetarian agenda. What for? What reason are, are are those mega wealthy people talking about nutrition so much when that's not their background and clearly they're not applying it to themselves? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. What, uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about today was um, the uh, what the Gates Foundation is, um, and so um, at the early part of the twentieth century. Um, there was, and this was a story that I told in, uh, that other podcast where, um, you get, uh, so Rockefeller essentially ruled, uh, it's probably one of the most, most wealthy people that the world had ever seen. Uh, he, he ruled with an iron fist. Um, and, uh, there was an event that happened in 1914, it was a Colorado minor strike, um, where, uh, in essence, the strike breakers, uh, opened fire on protesters and killed, I think, 51 um, women and children. Uh, they just opened fired into these tents. Um, so you would have these, you would have these company towns, these mining communities that were essentially owned by the mining company. Uh, Rockefeller was a majority owner uh, in this mining company, um, and so if you wanted to protest, you were kicked out. Right, you couldn't live there. You you couldn't afford food. The company store owned you. Uh, in some places, it got so extreme that if you fell behind in your payments, uh, the manager could actually take your wife. Wow. Uh, and sleep with her in order to pay off payments. Wow. So the the totality of the structure of these mining communities was so powerful. Um, and for the most part, the cities didn't care or really understand all of the stuff that was happening in order to get the coal that, you know, lit their fires and turn on their electricity or anything like that. Um, but after the miners' strike, uh, Rockefeller f- fell into enormous disfavor. Um, he hired the first PR agency to regroom his image, um, which eventually uh, morphed into uh, the, the public relations, right? The thing that we kind of like live in nowadays, um, advertising community, uh, ad agencies, um, and PR, right? Um, public relations and propaganda. Um, and so he paid somebody like a thousand dollars a month to rehab his image. And one of the things he did was he started a foundation, um, called the Rockefeller foundation. 
Um, and the Rockefeller Foundation was a, uh, a methodology so that by the time that Rockefeller passed away, he, everybody considered the man to be the world's greatest philanthropist, right? He went from a murdering fiend who broke strikes and killed children to, oh my God, he's a philanthropist. He's like, <laughs> you know. Um, and so that's a rehabbing of an image. So Gates, um, Gates kind of operated that way for a really long time. Um, one of the reasons why Netscape fell under was because he would utilize the uh, the software platform in Microsoft uh, so that the only thing that worked was his Internet Explorer. Um, and he just used every leverage and strong arm tactic to make sure that he had no competition at all. Um, and so there was an antitrust case that happened um, that really scared him. He thought he was going to lose all of the work of Microsoft. Um, and for the most part, if you study Gates, you realize like, one, he's not like he wasn't even a software giant. Like he stole most of it. Um, most of the original software was open sourced. Um, he just essentially took it and made it proprietary. Um, and then his partner was the one who was at the actual sort of genius in terms of coding. Um, he's just the, you know, like he's a soft doughy man. Um, but <laughs> you know, he was the, he was the strong arm, uh, and the mallet of that company. And so he feared that he was going to lose his job. So what he decided to do was follow the Rockefeller tradition and start with the Gates Foundation. Um, and so he created that, right? Um, and that was to leverage a whole new idea of who he was. Uh, he sat down with his wife and he said, we're going to give away 95% of our fortune. Um, how much is he giving away? A fraction. Um, he hasn't, right? Uh, his, his wealth has skyrocketed over that time. He's not giving any, really any of it away. But what it allowed his foundation to do is essentially leverage philanthropy so that he could just do whatever he wanted to do. And so a lot of, it depends on really on how you consider like whether or not this guy actually does good. Um, a lot of his issues around maternal health and uh, vaccines and any number of different things, um, most of that money is shuttled to Western uh, nonprofits. 95% uh, of it goes to Western nonprofits. So he may like take a picture of himself in sub-Saharan Africa. He doesn't, None of that stuff is actually shuttled to to those groups that they need them. They're all going towards Western nonprofits. It allows him to sit in on any meeting that he wants. He's the philanthropist. He's the do-gooder, right? Um, he's the one who's funding all of these different things. So you have this guy who has a history of strong arming people to get whatever he wants, who's not particularly good at listening to anybody else, um, you know, who is relentless and ruthless, you know, human being, but now he's a philanthropist and he's doing good, you know? And so I think that one of the things is that happens with these guys is like, I mean, he doesn't necessarily like we're again, we're all consumers. We're uh, an amorphous, like faceless mass of people um, that are, you know, just his sort of plaything. Um, and that's the way that I tend to think of him. Um, he, um, there is one specific case that I think is actually very telling about him um, that he, so the Gates Foundation was working in sub-Saharan Africa. They were specifically working on, um, uh, there was a small paper that had come out that said um, circumcised penises uh, are uh, reduce the transmission of AIDS by a minuscule amount, um, but st statistically significant uh, to some of the people who uh, like read it. Um, and so he adopted this program of 
circumcision. It's very Kellogg, right? So Kellogg yeah, is uh, part of, yeah. So, um, so uh, Kellogg is part of the, pro- one of the primary reasons why um, most Western American men are circumcised nowadays, because uh, he wanted to diminish uh, sex- sexual potency in men. Um, and adult so men Gates, also, Gates, adult men also, and women at the time. Scary, yeah. scary stuff. Yeah. So he, he used to uh, pour acid on women's clitorises. Uh, oh and he, uh, 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 Kellogg had adopted a procedure um, that would put, in essence, like a, um, uh, a, um, I think it was silver. It was a silver string uh, in, in your penis and wrapped around so that if you got an erection, it would be enormously painful. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, so Gates gets Gates gets this idea. He wants to go out and he wants to adult circumcise uh, a bunch of men in Africa. Um, if memory serves, it's close to seven million. Um, he uh, pushes this whole program going forward. I have no idea why. I don't know why anybody doesn't push back against him um, because of, really the results were actually minimal. Um, but one of the things that happens is through translation, through um, the the actual procedure itself. Uh, it's somehow translated within the larger community that circumcision means that you can't get AIDS anymore. And so you have a bunch of people who may have used prophylactics, who may have done that now going out because they've been circumcised now consider themselves immune to getting AIDS. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, and it's, it's one of those things like, even if you try to find the study, it's really hard to find. He, he so dominates the entire landscape of, of what is considered like, you know, um, like if you just look up the Gates Foundation, you're not going to really find a lot of this stuff. Um, and so that's his methodology of thinking, right? This is a guy who operates with total impunity, um, who even within um, like programs that he considers to be massively important programs, every dollar of the Gates Foundation that goes in requires that governmental entity to spend two to three dollars of their own money in order to implement his his whims and desires uh and so you have people shuttling governments shuttling money towards gates foundation programs uh but moving it away from things are actually real problems that are happening within their country you know um, as to plant-based meats, um, Chloe Servino, I did an interview with, she wrote a book called Raw Meat. Uh, she had a really interesting perspective on this. She said, um, within the landscape of um, the adoption of a new food substance, um, we haven't seen anything in like close to 30 years. Um, the part of the reason why plant-based meats really blew up was because you had this like, yeah, the, uh, the perfect combination of venture capital coming in, looking for new markets uh, and new opportunities. And then you have this new thing that looks like it's new within the food landscape because uh, food companies will try like 40,000 new products a year, um, hoping that some will kind of grab on, right? Uh, spicy this or, you know, whatever. But as far as like a novel food product, there hadn't been anything in like 25 or 30 years. So the, the push for it, um, met with venture capital. Uh, it met with post 2008 financial crisis, like money looking for a place to hold it, but also allowed for VC. What a lot of the original VC, uh, funders would do is they really pump up the stock and pump up the price of these things so that they could sell it later on. Um, and so you have all of this dumb money going in. That's what Chloe calls it. It's like dumb money going into this stuff. Um, knowing that those people really just wanted to get the fuck out. 
right? Wow. Um, and so there, uh, there's a lot of that stuff that kind of happens within these new ventures. Um, it's like, as long as you can find a greater fool, uh, you can continue to make money. That's why Ponzi schemes work really like made off and stuff like that. Um, as long as you can always find a greater fool, um, you it essentially will make enormous wealth. Um, and so she said that that operated in terms of VC mode plant-based movement was essentially just dumb money going in and the people who were left behind were the people who genuinely thought that this was the movement and that would would move um and so it just left a lot of like just conventional people and you know like people who invested in this and and some people who actually probably believed in it like left with nothing yeah. i mean we've seen the stock value and the price of all of that stuff dramatically rot right firing employees getting rid of all of that stuff like plant you know lab meats any number of different things there's just so much dumb money going so like all right so let's go through the absurdity we had corn milk at one point uh we had cockroach milk uh that was that was one that was <laughs> right i mean anything you could like turn into a milk was like turn into a milk potato milk right potato milk right like runny mashed potatoes <laughs> right uh, any number of different things like we know that almond milk isn't really almonds it's just water right it's just cloudy water um but you can kind of like recreate this whole thing and the plant-based is a marketing agency advertising term they did enough research on it so that what they what they decided was that vegan actually is really off-putting to people um one of the largest studies uh, done on people's perceptions of like specific groups uh, had put veganism and like drug addiction at like the the the, the thing that people really despise the most, which I think is really unfair to drug addicts. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> um, but it like the the degree of proselytizing and moral superiority that 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 is veganism really leads them into that place. So it's not, it's not a particularly good marketing term. I think if you want to sell a product, but if you can call it plant-based, it can really just mean whatever you want it to mean. It's a nebulous term, just like natural. Right. Um, and so that's, that's where the plant-based movement essentially sort of came in. And that's where you get like the dumb money going into like game changers, right? The dumb, like the people who are going into these documentaries who are in essence trying to, shuttle people into plant-based as like what like the four separate categories right you want to be an elite athlete right? you care about the environment uh, you care about animal rights um you know or you don't know anything about where your food comes from here we're going to show you these four documentaries we're going to show you all of that stuff and then essentially just like these 90 minute commercials for like moving people into all this yeah. stuff and game changer is just the biggest one right so Game Changers is, you know, James Cameron, who invests $140 million in a pea plant, uh, pea protein company, right? He wants to, he wants to go and sell you a product. So he puts together this, you know, dumb guy who just wants to, I'm just doing some research on my own, <laughs> you know? yeah. right? I'm just going to go off in my trusty van and do some research. And he shows in front of the computer, like clicking on shit, yep. And, yep. you know, discovering the, exactly. you know, like the real time, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> it's so, it's so preposterous. And that documentary was so well-made it was it it's the most like disruptive 
thing that I've seen in the nutrition world for a long time. I answer questions about it all the time, even though there's like zero science to it. It's been thoroughly debunked up and down, left and right by so many people. It does destruction because it, it's enticing for all of those reasons that you mentioned. We all want to do our part for the planet. Nobody wants to kill animals. Like I want to maximize my health. And if you're presenting this wonderful, beautiful documentary that shows me exactly how I can do that and showing these athletes who are truly nobodies, a lot of them have gotten injured or have since left the diet altogether. It's, it's enticing. Of course, young people in particular would want to go down that route. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and, and it follows, I think in many ways, like a very religious sort of like methodology, right? So like all roads lead to this one thing that if you excise from the world will make everything better. Um, and that existed in the 1920s. There, there was originally a group that had gotten the American vegetarian movement, uh, had petitioned Woodrow Wilson, uh, to remove like or drastically uh, reduce meat consumption in America, because what they saw was in the ab- uh, in the aftermath of World War One, um, they saw meat as uh, like an aggressive food that makes people belligerent, and you know, um, and so if you could diminish that virility, maybe we wouldn't have wars anymore. Um, and so you know, it follows a lot of the basic premises of, uh, of a religious sort of like kind of cult, um, you know, um, the veganism very specifically, there were, you know, I mean, there's any number of different things, but, uh, it, it always goes back to, to meat. It's destroying the environment. It's doing any number of different things. And I think it actually does a disservice to the environmentalist movement because it really obfuscates the role of fossil fuel companies, um, by, like putting these two things as if they're like part of the same, uh, they, they have the same global impact, um, you know, and like there was a one documentary called eating to extinction that was paid, like it was produced by a Saudi billionaire, right. <laughs> you know? So there's like, you know, like I always check, right. Any new documentary that comes out, I mean, sure. We have a couple, like the, there's one on the uh, COVID, uh, pandemic, um, that Joaquin Phoenix is producing, um, any new, you know, like large button issue will essentially just become something that, that can be subsumed by this move towards this vegan utopia. Um, but check the IMDb, like of that, of that film, uh, look who produced it, you know, do a little bit of research on the primary producers. That money is coming in from very specific sources. So regardless of what the film says, um, how how good they are at storytelling, the visuals that they show of like you know like a uh, an animal you know like say a, a you know cow finishing operation, um, and then immediately show like a apocalyptic landscape <laughs> of floods coming in, you know, <laughs> and like you know wildfires and any number of different things. They there is very specific visual template that is used. Uh, in documentary filmmaking to have that one thing be uh, automatically associated with the other. Um, And, you know, for me, it's like, you can say whatever you want, but don't tell me that like, you know, that this is some guy who, you know, like say the cowspiracy guy, some guy who just wanted to discover the truth, you know, whose life is threatened by the agency that, you know, like, I can't believe you're still alive, buddy. (laughs) There's a, there's a really interesting uh, debate that happened between one of the producers uh, and the director of Cowspiracy uh, that happened. It was called um, the podcast was called climate one. 
and if you look up Climate One and Nicolette Nyman, so Nicolette Nyman um, is really, really wonderful author. Um, she is uh, the wife of uh, Bruce Nyman, uh, Nyman Ranch, yeah. um, regenerative agriculture farmer. Um, and um, she decided to do a debate with, um, I think it's Keegan Kung, one, one of the originals. Um, and listen to it. Just listen to the back and forth. Uh, Keegan obviously is, uh, you know, I, I think a little bit thrown out of whack, actually having to defend his own film. Um, but the interesting part about it is the Q&A that happens with the audience afterwards. Uh, the audience, there are people who were actually in the film uh, whose uh, interviews were doctored and edited in a way that made it sound like they were saying something which was the exact opposite of what they were saying. Oh my goodness. You know? Wow. And so it's, it's totally worth listening to because those people are genuinely angry. Um, and you can see, having watched Cowspiracy again like 10 years on, you can totally see that the way that he edited the film in myriad different ways, cutting people off and, you know, like doing any number of different things to make it look like this was, you know, a gotcha, you know, conspiracy, you know, that's insane. I will find that. And I will link that in the show notes. Nicolette is amazing. We've hosted her on our show as well. Um, and just reading her book, like the way she cites the facts and numbers, I would not want to debate her on anything. She is very (laughs) smart who did, a ton, a ton of research. So, okay. So for somebody listening, they're hearing all of this. We've got all these food systems in place. It's seemingly like insurmountable challenges ahead. I, I asked you last time, what can the individual do about this? You gave an answer that was like, you know, you, you, the consumer is a consumer, but has choice. You can choose where you shop. You can, you can meet people. You can meet ranchers. You can go to the farmer's market. Like there's things that you can do. You have the power to do that. And you said you need to, a, a great thing to do would be braising cheaper cuts of meat filet mignon is overrated it's the shittiest cut of meat anyway first of all show your work i want you to explain why filet mignon (laughs) is the shittiest cut it's not a cut that i eat by the way but i I love the statement and then if you have time today i would love to just kind of talk about like some of the ways we can be thinking about preparing some of those um cheaper cuts of meat yeah absolutely um yeah let's go back to hunter gatherers so hunter gatherers will um will typically uh they they uh, they they act like carnivores in a myriad of different ways. So uh, the thing that they're generally going to go for is organ meats. Um, they will eat that first. Um, and so what hunter-gatherers tended to do was they would take the filet. Um, it's primarily t- like flavorless uh, and feed it to the dogs. Um, and so one of the weird like, you know, like polarities that happen in civilization is this thing that was in essence like the the throwaway food uh, then has now become, you know, the most prized commodity. Um, and so it's an underworked muscle. Um, you utilize it, uh, in sitting up and walking, um, cows don't particularly use it all that much. And so because it's an underworked muscle, uh, just means that over a, like a course and period of time, it just doesn't gather flavor. Um, you know, so the, the more worked muscles, I don't know if you've ever tried beef cheeks, uh, pig cheeks and stuff like that, beef cheeks, I and mean, you're, you're chewing for, 14 hours a day is an incredibly worked muscle. Um, and so um, the thing about those is that they require a lot of time to break down a lot of the collagen fibers um, and to break them down in a way that is digestible. And, you know, uh, for us, um, one of the things about the modern food environment 
in terms of the way that our uh, our jaws develop is because we don't really chew food anymore. Think about Kellogg's Corn Flakes and stuff like that. Um, most of the stuff that we give to our kids, it requires them to chew less and less. Um, you know, it, one of the things about it is our jaw structure functionally ch- shifts and changes so much um, that it obstructs our uh, nasal passages. It obstructs our like ability to breathe. Um, they've, you know, there are a, a number of studies that have been done on ADHD, um, really changing the palate and allowing that stuff to open means that the airways actually open up and there's a functional decrease in like ADHD. Wow. Uh, we've seen that with, and there, there are dentists who are working on this, like, you know, who are functionally really trying to change, um, the, the constriction of our own airways. And so eating foods that require chewing, um, means that you're eating the tougher cuts of meat. Um, plus all of those tougher cuts of meat will have a little bit more fat. They'll have a lot more collagen. They'll have, um, proteins that we don't normally digest anymore because we're primarily going for, um, muscle meat over anything else. Um, and so I think it's, and plus it's always cheaper, you know, um, uh, chefs recognize this. Um, and it's part of the reason why, like I, I worked at a butcher shop at 14 to 18, uh, before I joined the military. And then I actually worked in another butcher shop in my late thirties in England. Um, and one of the things was that I, we, we marveled at the fact that short ribs, um, you know, this really fatty cut of meat then became sort of like cause celeb for, um, all of the, these restaurants, they would have suddenly selling out. And so the price per pound of short ribs used to be like less than a dollar per pound. And now it's like six or $7. Yeah. Um, but what, one of the things that chefs started to recognize was that fat equals flavor. It's, it's the backbone of French cooking. They've known it all along. It was butter, butter, butter. <laughs> it's like, you know, um, you know, uh, eggs, saturated fat, like all of those foods, pates, every single one of those foods was, um, was, was, uh, carried flavor in the fat. Um, and so if you're taking that fat, um, and then also ingesting a used muscle, um, that actually has some flavor because it is used then you're getting this taste sensation, this completely different flavor experience that, you know, Mark Schatzker kind of writes about in the Dorito effect. We, we don't eat like food that has flavor anymore. And so our bodies are kind of searching for the nutrients that would be available in that. Um, you know, it's part of the reason why like chicken doesn't taste like anything, right? Um, because we, we've essentially bred all of the flavor out of it. Um, there is a, uh, there is a chicken that is like the national chicken in France. Um, and it looks like a dinosaur. Um, it is, uh, uh Le Poulet Rouge, I think it's called. Mm. Um, the breast meat is super small. Uh, the legs are massive. Wow. Um, you know, it, it just looks like a dinosaur. Um, but the, the fat on it, the fat content is yellow. It's so much of that bird so that when you roast it, it just like marinates in its own juices. Wow. Like the, the vegetables are absolutely insane that you put underneath. Oh, wow. Um, and so part of like our fat phobia drove us towards filet mignon, right? So filet mignon, very little fat content, um, mostly protein and, you know, like meat source, um, it's flavorless. Um, and which is the reason why, like in some of the best chefs, if you go, so say, say you go to Gordon Ramsay restaurant and you sort of order the filet mignon and you say, I want it well done. Right. I mean, first of all, he's probably going to yell at you. Um, <laughs> but the secondary part of it is that 
what they'll do is they'll, they will make it to order, right? You're the customer, you're asking for it. You order the filet, you want it well done. They rest it in clarified butter. It's the only way to get anything flavorful out of it, right? So you just rest it in pure fat, wow. right? It's the only thing you can do. Um, same thing in that restaurant, you order an egg white omelet, they just cook it in butter because wow. you, you know you're going to be dissatisfied with it. Um, and so for me, like using those off cuts of meats, um, the beef cheeks, the, the ones that aren't typically used, um, you're just going to get a different flavor profile and different sensation from it. Um, the way that I tend to like to do this is, um, you know, I, uh, it's obviously in stews, right? So, um, you know, like you, you want to create a, a textural difference in that. Um, so say I'm using chuck or I'm using beef cheeks or anything like that. Um, you start out in a very dry pan um, and you dry out the meat as much as you possibly can. Uh, it used to be you put flour in it to just pull all of the surface water out of it as much as possible. Because if not, you're steaming the meat. That's why you got to kind of get gray meat. Um, so you try to pull all of that out. I actually just use paper towels. I just pull as much of that water content out of the surface of the meat. Um, and then I'll put down a fat. Um, and then just lay it in there at the highest heat that I can get off of my stove. I mean, the thing is just smoking all over the place. Um, I just trying to get as much textural difference. So I'll get a really nice Brown on the top of it. And then I'm just like cooking it in a liquid until I get it to a place where, um, you know, it's broken down, but it's not so turned into a gelatinous mess that it just falls apart on its own. Um, my tendency nowadays is like to, um, I will go, Start a preparation, say I'm making a stew. It takes me like less than 25 minutes to get the whole thing going. I put it in the oven at like 240 to, to 270 um, while it's boiling. So I, I get it to a boil. I pop it in there. I don't think about it for three hours. You know, um, don't think about it. Just allow it to do its own thing. You don't have to stir it. You don't do anything with it. Uh, the fat is going to come to the top a little bit. You, Depending on how fat phobic you are, you might want to just ladle a little bit of it off. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit of cloy cloying, um, or you can just mix it back in. Um, so that that's my tendency with that is you know, raise it in a liquid of like chicken stock or beef stock or anything like that. Um, add whatever vegetables you want to it. Start to think outside the box. I love cabbage and beef together. Hmm. Um yeah, like surprisingly, yeah. like really, really good. Um, I, I, yeah, I had that in, um, I had that in Germany and I was like, wow, this is really, really nice together. Um, yeah. And so it, one, it'll save you money. Most people are afraid of that stuff. They're, they, they won't go towards those larger cuts of meat. Um, and the awful, the other aspects of it, because, um, because it does require a little bit of time and effort. Um, you know, uh, you, you can get yourself a slow cooker and then that thing is going to be done by the end of the day. You just don't even have to think about it. Um, you know, and so that for me is like I, the, and then make sure you salt it. Like you've got to be able to taste it. You know, if you smell it and you smell water, just keep on adding salt until you smell all of those flavors will combine and it'll just take over your entire palate. It's really, really wonderful. Um, that's a great tip. Like I didn't know like that, that as far as like smell. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's the same thing with soups and everything like that. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, the, the thing about fat also that I find is that it, it just, the degree of society that you get off of it is almost hard for people to conceptualize. Right. 
Like when you start to eat really satiating foods that are going to sort of fill you up for like six to seven hours, um, you just find like there's a period of time where you, you're you're adjusting for um, the the caloric density of it, but also the satiation quality of it. So that at the end of the day, you're like, wow, it's just it's like seven hours and I haven't eaten and I'm still hungry. So like, be careful with that. Like, just make sure that you're getting enough calories for the day. Yeah. Because there there was a period of time when I was eating. Um, I, I realized I was like on this calorie starvation diet uh, unintentionally because fat is just fat and protein are just so satiating. Yep. Um, and so just monitor that because uh, over the course of like 48 hours to 72 hours, you might get a real dip in energy levels if you're just taking in a, a calorically low diet. Yeah. I noticed you that know? in myself when I was doing OMAD, I did OMAD for over a year and I started to notice in myself, those signs of metabolic slowdown, cold hands and feet, a little bit, you know, yep. poor energy, can't build muscle as well. Like, okay, I need to, I need to add in another meal. Yeah. I, uh, the only time I ever experienced that was when I was vegan. Oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That makes Eating sense. All the time. And yeah. yeah, I could not, I would be having a conversation with you in 50 degree weather and I would be shaking. Yeah. I, I would have hear to those like stories, wear gloves. People like shivering. Yeah. Terrible. You're like, Oh, that's why the vegans are in California. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Good call. Wow. Okay. So I love how you made this so approachable. Like if you have a good cast iron pan, you've got a Dutch oven or something. That's really all you need. Pretty much everybody has an oven. Slow cookers are incredibly inexpensive. Somebody could go grab one of those. Yeah. It will pay you back. And in, in, I don't know, days, weeks, like if you're ordering your food out, it'll pay you back both in taste and in money in no time. Like, like, very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, if somebody did have a little bit more capital and they wanted to invest a little bit more in their food prep, do you have a favorite, like a sous vide or um, a smoker, um, anything along those lines that you really love? The only thing that I've invested in in a really, really long time was an air fryer. Um, and uh, the part of the reason why I absolutely love it was for chicken thighs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I use it for veg and I use it for chicken thighs. Um, you know, it is absolutely like I tried um, air frying eggs, it kind of burns them on the inside, but also super easy, right? If you just don't care that much, it's like just straight from the fridge, like 12 minutes, you know, boom, you've got a dozen uh, like hard, hard boiled eggs that are like totally done, like easy, 100%, you know, like absolutely amazing uh but chicken thighs are just insane oh yeah with it bone in skin yeah. on the least expensive you can find yeah. in an air least fryer expensive. oh dude right beyond yeah wings wings chicken wings so good dude i've eaten chicken wings out of my air fryer with nothing no seasoning no sauce they're just that good on their own i've got a place locally that that sources fresh wings and they're they're way more meaty than what you can get at a normal store in the freezer section and those things yeah. cooked up in the air fryer are dynamite yeah and you know like I, I render my bacon grease and i save that for cooking so that's always a really good you know like uh just utilize as much as you possibly can so you're just not wasting a lot yeah. there's the circularity of um like a uh an animal-based diet um just means that like one um this the satiating quality of it means that i'm not i'm not chasing nutrients all over the place i'm not looking for you know like the i'm not chasing the rainbow of vegetables to try to get all of these unique components um primarily my diet is yogurt uh berries uh meat uh, and then I love cruciferous vegetables and like really hearty, 
Um, you know, some of the vegetables I love are the ones that are the least uh, manipulated by modern society. So like artichokes and stuff like that. Um, but you don't like, you know, I don't think about all of that stuff in the same way that I used to when I was constantly chasing variety for its own sake. Yeah. Um, so it just saves you so much money. There's so little waste. It's astounding you know? too. And you as a chef would probably relate to this. As you were saying, like, I'm sure your, your cooks were a lot more elaborate with tons of spices and flavors and all these things. And that's fun. Like that's cool to do, but also salt. You, you can just appreciate a good piece of meat with whatever vegetables you like with quality salt. And that's kind of enough. Like the flavors that come through these foods are so good and you don't need a big variety of them. Like you said, like, we have like five or six things around here and they're all tasty and delicious. And that's as much variety as we need. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Full fat yogurt. Like I grew up, I grew up, my mom was a ballet dancer. I grew up with like better living through science, powdered milk and skim milk and yep. 1% and, <laughs> you know, margarine, yep. you know, all of those things. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, the first time I fed my mom, uh, risotto that was made with like, like proper chicken stock and with butter, she just like, I've never seen my mom like go for thirds on any meal. <laughs> so, that's fantastic. You know, she was, yeah. That's fantastic. Know. And one so, last thing on chicken stock, save the bones from the delicious air fried chicken thighs so that you yeah. can make real chicken stock. It is a game changer. A bullion cube is not chicken stock. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that in the same thing in the butcher shop, man, we used to give that stuff away. You couldn't do anything with bones. Like, you know, maybe a guy would come in every once in a while who would want a bone for his dog. Um, but like every single, the, the renaissance that I'm seeing in terms of the food movement is um, having conversations with guys like you, um, having conversations with people who really want to explore the landscape of where their food is coming from. Um, and then really just like taking that and saying, all right, well, what can I do in the kitchen that is going to be like a wow for friends and family? Like this is there are three times a day, you know, maybe twice a day you get to eat. Um, and it's a joy. It's a grace. Um, you know, there are so many aspects of it that are really, really wonderful. Um, and, and feeding and nourishing people, man, it's like the best experience in the world. And for me, who's like an introvert, I don't, regardless of what you think, I, I don't actually talk all that much. <laughs> One of the things that I found really, really wonderful was I could be in the kitchen where everybody congregates and gathers. I get to hear about what's happening in other people's lives, but I'm like, I get to also do the things that matter to me. Um, so I don't have to like sit in conversation all that much, but I can kind of listen to everything that's happening. So it's a wonderful way for introverts to go and like feed and nourish people and be around company without actually having to be like on, you know? Yeah. That's so amazing. Yeah. That's I, I'm so glad we're ending with that because I, I, at the end of all of this, again, we've talked food systems, we've talked the history of all this, how we've evolved. At the end of the day, the way we eat is a, an expression of love and culture and all of that stuff. And so we can't lose that when we're chasing one particular diet or one particular physical result. Like it's so much more than that. And man, I could just talk yeah. to you for hours and hours. I have such a great time learning from you. We've gotten great practical tips and a lot of history and a lot of things that I learned from this conversation. So James, where would you you like people to go oh, to man. find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah. I mean, I, I think primate kitchen is where I'm trying to build that puzzle for people. Um, so that's probably the best place to kind of find me. If you DM me or anything like that, always really good to hear from people. Um, you know, the, uh, 
the, the, the puzzle pieces that I'm all putting together may not necessarily sort of fit into your worldview if you're focusing on nutrition or cooking or food or anything like that. I guarantee every single one of them actually has a direct influence on, you know, the, the global position of the way that people consider what, what meat is, right? Either it's a, you know, like, um, I guarantee that all of this stuff that I'm putting in there is building a larger puzzle. Um, so if I'm interviewing a bison rancher in Bozeman, Montana, who is working on ecosystems where he's literally bringing in, you know, hundreds of different species of insects, like they're, they're gravitating towards his land because it contains all of these different uh, forage and, you know, flowers and seed varieties and all this other stuff. Um, I, we're focused on insect decline because most of our pollinators, um, believe it or not, like the ones that we have are that are honeybees, 100%. Like we, we use, utilize them. Uh, a lot of uh, our wild pollinators are in massive decline. And do you walk through the supermarket without pollinators and you're walking through a, a barren landscape? Uh, and so these guys are, are doing stuff without fertilizers, without out you know inputs from outside um they're utilizing regenerative agriculture uh, to build entire ecosystems that thrive uh for wild animals and then also bring in nourishment so i'm trying to build this whole edifice of like you know um an understanding of how all of, all of these different puzzle pieces kind of come together um which i think is just really it's just the most interesting aspect of the agricultural revolution that we still live in right um, is that you can study this for the rest of your life. All the myriad parts of it, the spider web of all of that is going to have a direct effect on all, all of those things. Because without food, none of this stuff matters. You know? Yeah, that's right. Now, yeah. don't we don't we import and then essentially murder like billions of, of pollinators so that we can have things like almonds and, and almond milk? Uh, yeah, I mean, for California, um, there's an entire ecosystem of transportation that brings pollinators in uh, for almonds, for pistachios, for, wal uh, for walnuts, for all of that stuff. And, you know, sometimes it coincides with uh, pesticide application. Um, and so these things essentially die. Um, there is there is so much um, that is happening with insect decline, um, specifically around uh, the level to which our, our pesticide landscapes do not allow for that function to kind of coexist. Like, you just can't walk through this, like, vituous fog of, you know, um, you know, parquat and per per pesticides and all this other stuff without just wiping out billions, literally, literally billions oh of pollinators, wow. you know? Wow. Yeah, and it's a, it's a barren landscape. It's a monoculture, wow. you know. So, yeah, and in some ways, I think it's a threat to uh, that techno utopian worldview is to see that landscape uh, in it happening. Yeah. So you go to Bozeman and you see, you know, seeds that haven't been seen in hundred a hundred years because they have bison are pressing and, and creating the perfect landscape for these like forage and grasses to come back, and you know, like. You have this thing that is this wonderful, absolutely wonderful ecosystem um, that is being nourished and is also nourishing people. You know, that's that's so, what gives um, me a lot of hope. Yeah, 
it's great you know yeah. but also again dude i want to congratulate you 500 plus oh, you know <laughs> Thank super you. cool man it's been a fun journey and i get to talk to amazing people like you who are out doing amazing work like i said in the very beginning i never know exactly where you are but you're doing something interesting and you're always you're always the person i'd want to grab dinner with so thank you so very much for being so generous with your time thank you for coming on our show today for the second time and and making that just such an interesting conversation we really really appreciate you james yeah pleasure man Cool. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It's incredible to see the podcast continue to grow and grow and reach more people from all over. We always love seeing all the comments and feedback that you send in. And frankly, in the last few months, I've actually gotten some of the kindest messages I've ever gotten from listeners of our podcast. And it's just really so overwhelming and humbling. And I'm just so grateful for that. Our intention for Boundless Body Radio was to always put something positive back out in the world and help share a message of health to hopefully improve some lives. And I'm very happy to say that I feel confident that we are accomplishing that mission. We absolutely love connecting with people from all over the world. So please go to myboundlessbody.com and feel free to book a complimentary 30-minute session with us. We love helping people create plans to reach their health goals, but even if it's just to schedule a time to say hello and introduce yourself or to just have a session where we can bounce ideas off of each other, we would really love to hear from you. Also, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review as it's a great way to help this podcast reach more people. You can also go to our YouTube channel, which I don't often talk about, and subscribe to our show, Boundless Body, where we post all of these full interviews. And I also post some shorter clips taken from these interviews that might highlight something really awesome that one of our podcast guests uh, was talking about. So be sure to go check that out. Thank you again, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio. We really appreciate you, the listener, and look forward to many more great episodes to come.